0: Coalition, a program of the Foundation for Healthcare Quality. The tides of American healthcare are shifting rapidly, and while that means healthcare is in the news a lot more than it used to be, it doesn't mean the public necessarily understands what is going on. Even those of us in the healthcare world have a hard time keeping up. Amid all of this uncertainty emerges this, the new wave of healthcare. A podcast designed to help you wade through the complexities of our healthcare system, how it got this way, where it's going, and most importantly, how it affects you and your loved ones. I'm your host, Kenzie Gray, Program Coordinator for the Washington Patient Safety Coalition. And joining me today is a guest who is a healthcare professional living in New York City during the coronavirus pandemic. She recently was diagnosed with COVID 19 and was gracious enough to share her experience. To protect her identity, we will not be sharing her name or identifying information. Rather, we encourage you to listen from a patient perspective to her firsthand experience about what it was like to be diagnosed with COVID-19 when you live in the US EpiCenter for the Disease. Thank you so much for joining me today. To kick things off, can you just provide us with some background information um, about yourself? So where do you live? What is your work environment like? How has it been during this COVID crisis? Sure. So I live in New York City. I live in Manhattan. And it has been pretty crazy during the COVID crisis. I'm in graduate training. So I'm on my internship year, meaning I'm working in a hospital setting. I think New York hasn't in the five years I've lived here at least um, but from what I gather talking to you know friends and family and people that have lived in New York for a while you know no one's experienced anything like this the closest thing that people compare it to is 9-11 as just like a cultural collective trauma I guess. Mm -hmm. And when you know do you feel like New York really started to pick up that this COVID-19 crisis was going to be a big deal? It's hard to say. I have to think back. I mean, I think we were, you know, aware of it. Maybe I was, it was maybe a little bit more on the radar of healthcare workers in hospital settings or healthcare workers in general, probably just as something that was going on in China and in, you know, January and February but I think things didn't really ramp up until very late February early March in terms of it being on our radar as you know in New York and when that started happening how was your work environment do you feel you know they were adequately preparing and that you or were you nervous that you were going to contract the virus or that you felt safe? I think all of New Yorkers sort of felt the same at that point, like regardless Mm -hmm. of kind of work setting is just, I mean, I think, you know, as you mentioned, you guys are in in Washington, Seattle, and like we were aware of all the cases that were and the spots that were blowing up a little bit more around the country you know, there was a wariness, but I don't think there was as much anxiety until there were cases identified in New York through community spread. Mm -hmm. I think my first memory of of really being concerned about it was, you know, just like being in a doctor's appointment, like a regular doctor's appointment, and seeing, you know, that there was the lawyer from Westchester, you know, which is like 45 minutes north of New York City-ish, who had contracted it and worked in a law firm in Midtown. I think it was Midtown, I'm not sure. Um, But, you know, worked at a law firm in Manhattan. And at that point, you know, I think everyone's wheels started turning about, like, how quickly this could spread because of the subway and all of that. So I I certainly felt anxious and, you know, all of the hand washing and, you know, Mm -hmm. being aware of not touching anything. I think everybody felt scared that we could get it. At that time. Mm-hmm. Sure. How did you first start to notice that you think you might have contracted it? Did you have symptoms? Were you overly, you know, kind of aware of everything that was going on? So you were very in tune to yourself, or did you know that you had come into contact with someone who had tested positive? So I think it was like both. I, you know, I work at a hospital and I knew that we had cases at the hospital. I didn't necessarily have confirmed exposure to a positive COVID patient that I knew of. Just kind of thinking about how it spread, I knew that that was just a possibility of being, you know, in a healthcare setting. I think I was aware just because the symptoms came on quite clearly. Mm -hmm. I had over the course of a day by like noon, I had a cough that was kind of intermittent. And then later that day, say like maybe three or four hours later, I kind of had a headache come on. By the evening, I had like a 99.8 temperature. By the time I had the temperature, I was like, okay, I have coronavirus. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah that
0: combination over the course of a day, I had a, a pretty strong feeling that that's what it was. Okay. So once you kind of self assessed the symptoms and determined that you're pretty positive. That's what it was. What was the next step? I know out here in Washington, initially, it was really hard to get tested unless you had a confirmed contact with someone who had tested positive for coronavirus. And so testing was very limited initially. And I think to some extent, it still is, just because there was a lack of availability for tests. Was that the experience for you? What was the process? Did you call your primary care doctor to tell them you suspected you had it or did you go straight to the emergency room? That was definitely the tricky part because obviously I didn't want to infect anybody else given like what I Mm -hmm. suspected. I knew I didn't want to be anywhere near an ER. I couldn't call my primary care doctor at that time because it was like 8 30 or nine o'clock at night. So I started looking up urgent cares in my area and calling them to see if they had COVID tests and if the doctor there would recommend that I come in or not based on my symptoms. The administrative assistant at the urgent care answered and basically said, I'm not a doctor. And I said, can you ask the doctor? And (laughs) she said, you know, we'd recommend that you come in. So luckily, I had gloves and a mask and kind of suited up you know of course i wasn't getting on the subway and i didn't even really want to take a cab so i just walked it was about i think 15 blocks you know like a 20 minute walk or something and mm-hmm. i felt well enough at that point it was like 9:30 at night and so i walked to urgent care and right when you walk in they had like a screener that you fill out and i can't remember i wish i remembered what the questions were on that screener whether or not exposure to um, a COVID patient was one of them or not. Yeah, I had to fill out, you know, basically a very brief screener of my symptoms. And maybe they had some other questions on there. And then I saw the doctor at Urgent Care, and he was in full PPE, like face shield, mask, gown, gloves, all of it. And they didn't have tests. This was uh, March 18th. So at that point, they were saying that, you know, they only had two tests that they were allowed to give a day at this particular urgent care, and that, you know, they really were supposed to save it for people who were high risk, as in, you know, I think older adults or people with underlying medical conditions, and that they didn't have a test to give me. But he looked at me and said, I believe pretty constantly you have coronavirus, and I would stay home. And self quarantine for 7 days and so that's kind of what I did and then the next day I called my own you know personal like primary care doctor he basically said the same thing he said stay home for 14 days you have it you know use Tylenol around the clock and if you have shortness of breath you know call me or go to ER so you were never actually able to get the test for it because they didn't have any or have enough correct Yeah. I think, you know, they had them, but they didn't have enough. Mm -hmm. You weren't high risk enough. Right. Right. I'm young. I'm healthy. I don't have underlying Mm -hmm. health conditions. I'm under 30. Yeah. So how did that make you feel knowing that two physicians, based on your symptoms, could pretty positively identify that you had coronavirus, but weren't willing to, or weren't able, I should say, to test you, to really assure you because of the lack of testing, the high risk standards that they need to be keeping for those those high risk individuals. How did that kind of affect your mental health just trying to think through, you know, you're pretty sure you have it, two physicians have confirmed they think you have it, but you can't get a test to really tell you, yes, I have this. I mean, I think I felt pretty frustrated and kind of I don't know if disappointed is the right word, frustrated. And also, I I don't think the impact of having a test really hit me until, you know, Hmm. being a healthcare worker when the doctor was explaining to me, we only get two tests a day, they're reserved for older adults or high-risk patients. I was kind of sitting there, in, in some ways, I think I felt like a solidarity with like New Yorkers of just like, yeah, this is what we're going through right now. And like, do I really need this? was my initial reaction with the thinking of like, okay, the outcome is going to be the same either way. Like I need to go home, Mm -hmm. self quarantine, it's going to ride itself out. There's nothing that's actually going to change about having the confirmation. And that's kind of how I felt in the beginning with just sort of the sense of like, if that test that would have been used on me would have, you know, can go to somebody that really needs a hospitalization, like, okay. And then I think in later days, just talking to uh, you know, friends and family members, and coworkers, and people that you know wanted sort of like a confirmed answer one way or the other. If they had been, if they had been in my presence recently, you mm-hmm. know, and and just sort of like the lack of clarity of people, you know, I think there's a sense of like, but did you get tested? But do you really know? you know, Mm -hmm. and so having to explain over and over again, two doctors told me I have it, these are my symptoms, you know, I feel extremely confident, like, I don't have any doubt that I had it. Um, I think that got sort of exhausting. And like, in hindsight, 2020, I completely wish I had a test, especially um, with the sense now that like, I'd like to donate plasma, um, or donate blood, you know, with some of Mm -hmm. the possibilities, it sounds like about antibodies. And I think that might still be a possibility, you know, and I I don't really know the details of how that works yet. I think, you know, having a COVID positive test just would have been a good piece of information, both for like my medical record and just communicating this information to people around me. Sure. And, you know, as you were talking about that too, I don't know with the physicians, if they don't have a positive Test for you? Can they report it as a confirmed COVID case? And what does, you know, how might that affect numbers, you know, across the state and the country as far as reporting patients who have come in and come out with a diagnosis of having the coronavirus? I'm sure that gets kind of tricky for them. I imagine the numbers are completely underreported. I left that day and I asked for documentation from the urgent care, you know, in case I needed it for work or something. And I was diagnosed with a viral, you know, it's like a viral infection. You know, they can't Mm -hmm. diagnose coronavirus without a coronavirus test. I think they can suspect it and they can treat it as they would, I guess, because the treatment isn't so different necessarily. So I I imagine the numbers are certainly underreported. And you mentioned... Going back and talking to friends and family members that, that you were pretty positive you had it. Two physicians told you you did. Did the physicians tell you or give you any guidance or advice about, you know, you need to tell people that you've come into contact with in the past this number of days that you have this so that they can be monitoring their symptoms or what did you just instinctively know to do that because you work in the healthcare field and were more aware of what was going on and what the transmission looked like. I think that was just more a personal thing. Neither of them told me anything, any sort of procedure about contacting other people I had possibly exposed. I think if anything, you know, my supervisor at the hospital was very on that and aware of that, more so of checking in and like, okay, what are your symptoms in case, you know, did you get a test in case I need to notify people about possible exposures and and things mm. like that. But it but no, neither of the doctors said anything about it. And there okay. was a sense like in talking to my primary care doctor on the phone, like he I know, you know, he's not in the office, he's doing phone calls, you know, he, I don't know if he's kind of like an internist or family medicine just outpatient private practice. But, you know, nonetheless like every phone call I had with him sounded very rushed and very like he mm. was very overwhelmed. So it didn't seem like, you know, you're getting the same level of like a thorough doctor's appointment as you normally Mm -hmm. would, just because New York healthcare is like so strapped. You were presumably diagnosed with it on March 18th. Had you been working from home at that point already, or were you still going in to the hospital? And, you know, what did that conversation with your supervisor look like once you realized that this is what was going on with you? I had just happened to take personal days, a couple personal days mm-hmm. before that, unrelated to the illness. I had been in the hospital, like certainly, I think within the last week of that, but not necessarily like the couple of days before. The second I told my supervisor, I'm not feeling, I, I think the message from the hospital, you know, even before I ever got sick was, if you feel sick, do not come in. So, you know, the second I told her, you know, what the situation was, you know, everybody was, of course, like, stay home. And was it stay home, but, you know, work from home or stay home and we don't need you to work? No, no. I was like better. like, you know, you're out on sick days or sick leave or whatever. Yeah. Is it paid sick leave or like you're using your PTO that you've, you know, accrued? No, it was paid sick leave. Okay. Do you have any roommates? that you were living with that you needed to inform about this and and what was their reaction yes i have a roommate who also is a healthcare worker in a different facility you know she was home the night that i went to urgent care so she was completely aware at some point she did move out to a different apartment um that luckily like a friend a friend of ours offered their apartment that they weren't using at the time but there were a couple of days where she stayed home. And I think that was also around the time where, I don't know if it was city or state guidelines, had informed us that if, if you were a healthcare worker with exposure but were not symptomatic, you were still going to work. I can only speculate on why, you know, local or I don't know if it was local or state officials were making that, but there was clearly such a need for healthcare workers and so many people were out sick that Mm -hmm. once it got spread large, I think fast enough and large enough, it first, I think the policy was kind of like, and I don't, I think this is hospital and, and healthcare setting specific, but then there were also from my understanding, like some overarching policies that, you know, were guidelines for the city and maybe for the state, I'm not sure. I think at first it was, if you've had exposure to someone that you know has it, don't come in. And then once places became so understaffed, it became, if you've had exposure, but you don't have any symptoms, you need to temperature check twice a day and closely monitor yourself, but still come in because, you Mm -hmm. know, patients needed to be taken care of. And is she still uh, living in a separate apartment? No. So she's, she's back since, you know, I'm completely healthy again. And okay, that's good. So you get diagnosed with this and then you're told stay at home, take Tylenol and kind of wait it out and hope to get better. (laughs) What was kind of going through your head as you started dealing with this on a day-to-day basis, being by yourself in the apartment? Did you feel like you had you know, enough groceries to stay at home for, you know, the foreseeable future? Or did you, you have to ever go out and get medicine or get food or anything? And what kind of toll did that play on you while you also were dealing with coronavirus? It was really rough. I think it was as far as like an illness goes, I think it's definitely like the most intense that I've had. I think I had mono like over a decade ago and that was it's hard for me to remember exactly how they would compare, but I think this was, maybe it's just because it's so recent, but I think this was worse. And I think doing it, there's like another just logistical and emotional difficulty of having to do it in isolation. On the one hand, I, I, I never didn't have food if I needed it. I was really, really lucky. I have Two very close friends that live right across the hall from me. And so, you know, they went to CVS for me and bought me, you know, medications or drugs or, you know, whatever if I needed it. They would get me groceries if I needed it. And luckily, I live in New York. Food delivery is constant here. So that's Mm -hmm. still going on. All the restaurants and bars are closed for eating in, but all of the delivery services. Not all of them, but like several restaurants are still delivering. So I could kind of order online and have it dropped outside my door. And I would just kind of yell through the door to have them drop it outside (laughs) so I didn't come into contact with them. So I think on the one hand, it was hard because I felt like at my sickest. And so getting out of bed or ordering something for myself or, you know, having to make myself tea, like just all of the physical acts of having to move were difficult. Then I think just like the emotional component of, yeah, I, you know, have this very serious illness and I feel like I have 103 fever and I can't move Mm -hmm. and like nobody can come near me, you know? So I think there's just like this further isolation piece that does play a role that's difficult. I can only imagine how much mentally that would take a toll on you. I am struggling just to stay in place here in Seattle where I don't have the coronavirus. And so I am able to go out and walk the dog or do things day to day. I can't even imagine knowing that you're being overly cautious to not infect anyone and having to stay in in an apartment is really tough mentally. What do you feel like was the worst peak with your diagnosis? You know, how many days in was it? You know, did you get a spike in a fever, a worse cough, you know, kind of how did that progress for you after you knew that you had the coronavirus? It took an interesting course. My symptoms started on March 18th. When I went to bed, they were not that bad, you know, kind of like, oh, I feel a little like under the weather. I mentioned like I had like 99.8. The two days after that were terrible, really intense at one point. I don't know if it was then or later on in the illness, you know, my fever was going up to like 102.9, 103.2 was like the highest it got. And so those first two days were just really, really, really rough. Then weirdly, two days after the first two days, it kind of lifted a bit and like my temperature, I still had a fever, but it was lower and like it became a little bit more of I had like a runny nose and watery eyes, which you know I called my PCP. He said that might be something separate. We don't really know, but that's not necessarily consistent with the typical presentation. Um, So it kind of like started really bad and then for two days kind of got better and felt more like a head cold with a low grade fever. And then the next five days after that, it came back pretty intensely. And then it was again, several, days of fever and you know and throughout all of this there was like non-stop coughing um I had lost my sense of taste and smell completely you know some body aches a lot of fatigue um a lot of chills and that was sort of consistent for five days I think when I when I ma- did the math in hindsight I had fever for 10 days and so you said you called your PCP again um when you started getting a runny nose and and different types of symptoms that weren't necessarily related to the coronavirus. Did you feel like they were listening to you and hearing you, and or was it just kind of lost in the shuffle of all of the other calls? And they knew they had already talked to you and confirmed that you probably had coronavirus and were just needing to move on to the next person. I would say like somewhere in between. It definitely felt due to the demand of like what my PCP was clearly dealing with in terms of patient flow and phone calls. He was, you know, listening for, do I have shortness of breath and do I have chest tightness? And if not, he's not too worried. I think he didn't, he was available to me. Every time I called his office and said, I'm a patient of X doctor, he already said, I have coronavirus. I need to talk to him. He would call me back. Like I never didn't get a call back. It was sort of like, do you have shortness of breath? If not, okay, here's what you would do for this. Take this medication or that medication. And that was sort of it. So you didn't feel like you had to advocate too hard for yourself that you were an important patient who needed to speak with the doctor because your symptoms could be worsening or something else could be going on? At times, there was definitely, I I would say not on that call. I think I felt Mm -hmm. like I had to advocate just to have time. On the phone with him mm. to try to get him to like hear me out and not necessarily dismiss it because it wasn't severe you know there was one night where I, I, I never had shortness of breath but I was having some chest tightness and kind of maybe shallow breathing you know obviously I'm not yeah. like a medical doctor so it's really hard to kind of exactly identify what was happening but it felt what I would imagine somebody with mild asthma has experientially and so I was definitely really concerned about that. It was like three in the morning. I tried calling like a hospital ER and that was like, you know, a wild goose chase to try to get through to the ER on the phone to talk to someone. And then they transfer me. It's the wrong person. Then I finally get to the ER. They're like, oh, if you have a question about your coronavirus symptoms, you need to call X number. That was like, you know, an outpatient clinic that was I wasn't a patient of, so they couldn't talk to me. So eventually, like, you know, the one experience I had of like, oh, is this getting more serious and do I need to go in? I think the short story there is that like, it was a pretty unsupportive, concerning experience just because it felt like, okay, it's 3am, I can't actually get any doctor on the phone that's going to talk to me. And finally, I called my own PCP, his office. And, you know, they said, there's an on-call doctor, he'll call you back and he did and it was my actual PCP but that was an extremely short phone call it was three Mm -hmm. in the morning it was again like okay do you have shortness of breath (laughs) and I was like I'm not exactly sure I have this but not that you know I don't think it's shortness of breath but my chest hurts and I think it's you know soreness from coughing that like my sternum is sore but I don't you know that was like a very I think that was like I would say the peak of feeling scared Mm -hmm. and Ultimately, he said, you know, based on how you're talking to me and you can speak in full sentences, it doesn't sound like you need to go to the hospital, monitor it, and you can call me back tomorrow if it's not better. And I'm assuming that by the next day it has subsided a little bit, so you felt better. Yeah. You know, now at this point, it's April 10th, and you said you're feeling completely better and are fine. Did your primary care physician or anyone kind of give you advice on how you'll know when it's completely gone? I know some people have been advised, you don't have a temperature for two days. We're considering it, that you're fine and over it. Is that what you were told or what information were you given to know that you are through the coronavirus and have recovered? I think the guidelines are really ambiguous. I think people ultimately or at least my own personal experience was feeling like nobody really knows. There's some guidelines in place, but but nobody really knows. Like I had the virus, like I personally felt sick for at least two weeks. Like my symptoms were still going past 14 days as far as the cough, but the fever... I think my primary care doctor basically said to me you know I called him and I said when do you think it's safe for me to leave the house and he said I said I've been feeling better for three to four days I haven't had fever for three to four days like what do you think and he was like "Eh, I'd give it another three to four days and I was like is that like what they're saying like like could you be more specific Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he basically said you know seven I think what they're saying is seven days after fever you know you can like stop quarantine and I you know Kind of for good measure, waited a, a couple days after that before I went outside. So, are you still using a mask and gloves when you go outside? Yeah, um, I've only been outside a few times. Um, I hadn't gone outside like in 18 days, and that felt crazy. So, I was like really ready to go outside. Yeah, I'm still using a mask and gloves. I still have the Purell on me, and it's a weird experience because it's like I again, this is where I wish I had been tested. Mm -hmm. I know I had it, but I don't really have a confirmation that I had it. Nobody, I think, has a definitive answer about immunity, but you know, based on what we're hearing, it feels like I should be immune to this. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I think my anxiety level being outside is significantly lower than anyone I know. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. have the same intense worry anymore. I have like a little bit of worry. I think, you know, the when I first left the house, the worry was really like, oh, I was, what if I'm still shedding the virus and I'm, you know, I could infect somebody else and being really nervous about that. I don't think I have like the same intense worry that I'm going to contract it just based on my experience. Mm -hmm. That's um, an interesting perspective. I would have thought you might feel more anxious just going outside, but it does make sense to have lower anxiety knowing you've had it, you're through it, and you likely are immune to it, but no official confirmation on that from anyone. <laughs> right, and that's why I think another reason that I feel compelled to get, try to get antibody testing, because if I could, mm-hmm. you know, donate antibodies, then I'm, there will be some confirmation of, oh yes, you did have this, you know, and now you, your body, you know, does have these antibodies that fight against it, and then I would feel, you know, I think even safer. There's a part of me that, mm-hmm. I think there's just like this inherent cultural fear right now with very good reason. And so when I leave the house, there is still, I think it's like ingrained in me. There's a level of nerves, but at the same time, I feel in some strange ways, I also feel relief because I'm like, okay, I'm in the best position right now to be on the street. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good point. Have you started working again now that you've been feeling better working remotely? Yeah, I have started working again remotely. And how was that kind of letting your supervisor know that you feel better and are over it and you're ready to start coming back to work? Were they supportive? Were they unsure? You know, how did they kind of help support you transition back into work? I mean, I think they were very supportive just in terms of like throughout the time that I was sick, you know, people were checking in with me from work pretty frequently every couple of days, you know, my supervisor would text me and say, how are you feeling? Don't come back until you feel a hundred percent, you know, like I didn't feel like a pressure mm-hmm. in terms of having to rush back. And so that part was fine. I think they pretty much just trusted my clinical judgment. Well, I did have to have a phone call with like our employee health service at the hospital. And like, they had to be informed that I had it I had to check in with, I assume it was a physician there about my symptoms and when they stopped before they said, okay, you can go back to work. And I think they weren't even aware necessarily that I was working from home. So I think that's Mm -hmm. just like the general procedure in case I actually physically was coming back to work. So I, it felt like in some ways a little bit lower stakes of being able to come back maybe sooner than I would have if I was physically going to the hospital and how was that conversation with them without having the official positive test you told them that you had been confirmed by two physicians but didn't have the actual positive test where they you know they took that as the word with you know knowing you had all the symptoms and everything and and understood what was going on yeah they were there was like no question from them it didn't okay. feel like yeah i think it was kind of there's just kind of this general understanding in new york that like so many people have it that aren't getting tested. There was no questions there. Now kind of having gone through all of this and being on the other side and being recovered and back to work and resuming the new normal um, of daily activities, what would you want to tell someone who has just received a positive diagnosis or had a family member receive a positive diagnosis? Is there any advice or thoughts having gone through all of this, you would want someone to know? I guess one thing that I felt like aware of that I wanted my friends and family to know is to stock up on medicine, just not just cleaning supplies. Like I hadn't Mm -hmm. particularly had Tylenol lying around my apartment. And thank God, my roommate had a whole bottle that I went through for places that are metropolitan areas, or, you know, like I know New York, you know, it's not like you can just walk into a drugstore and buy medicine or buy cleaning supplies, like the shelves are all empty. Um, Or I haven't been, you know, in a very long time. But last time I was out and about, the shelves were empty, you can't get toilet paper, you can't get a lot of cough and cold medicine. I think that was a point that I was making to my friends of like, everybody should be buying cost medicine and extra strength Tylenol and also stocking up, not just like in a preventative way, but in a if I have to treat this way. So mm-hmm. not just the cleaning supplies, but also the medicine is one thing I would say. I feel more concerned about, you know, people who are, you know, my parents' age, um, and mm-hmm. of that older age group, I just feel the social distancing is so important. Like if it hasn't blown up in your community yet, you don't really feel the impact of what's coming. The feeling in New York is so bizarre right now. And it's just Mm -hmm. like a real deliberation of like, do I even leave the house? How many times do I leave the house? Like every time you leave the house, it feels like you're exposing yourself to risk. I think knowing how unpredictable this virus is do everything you can to not touch your face, to wash your hands, to wear a mask, to to social distance, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think also working in a healthcare setting and having conversations with other healthcare providers, one thing I didn't really know while I was sick, and I think I'm, I'm happy I didn't know this while I was sick, is just how severe it could get extremely quickly, You could Mm -hmm. be fine one morning and one evening, you know, be in an ER with your oxygen crashing. So I think, you know, in some ways that's more common in older adults or, you know, people 60s, 70s, 80s. The severity that could kind of come on at any moment, I think, is pretty scary about this illness. Because with my course, also, it's like I was horrible for two weeks two days and then I felt kind of better and I thought I was moving in the right direction and then it came crashing back again. So like it's not Mm -hmm. a linear course of improvement. It's not a linear course of illness. It could kind of hop Mm -hmm. around. That's really good information. I can imagine it'd be nice to not know the severity that it could take while you're sick with it because that would just add an additional um, mental strain and anxiety on you trying to already fight off something very serious. Yeah, and you know, I think the anxiety just also plays a physiological role, like just, you know, being somebody that, you know, works with people that have anxiety, what we know about it is like if you start, you know, paying attention to your bodily sensations and your bodily symptoms, the more attuned you are to that, the more it might spike your anxiety and that can be like a cyclical pattern where, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe I didn't, maybe at first my heart rate wasn't so high, but now I'm thinking about it. Or maybe at first I wasn't having shortness of breath, but now I'm wondering if I am. And your, your mind can actually sort of, you know, influence the physiological experience. So on top of having a cough and on top of having fatigue or chest tightness, because you've been coughing so much, then maybe your anxiety is exacerbating or making it feel like those symptoms are exacerbated. And that's like kind of a tricky cycle as well. Do you, did you, I guess, have any tricks or things that you would do to kind of help lower that anxiety for you? You know, did you meditate? Did you, I mean, you can't really try to take deep breaths when you're having shortness of breath and coughing a lot. So what kind of mental exercises did you have on hand or did you do to kind of help lower that anxiety and, and mental strain? I think the only thing kind of concretely that I can remember doing that maybe had some helpful effect was just putting on sort of meditative calming music to try to go to sleep. Like there was three or four nights where I was having these sorts of like physiological symptoms of like I'm coughing so much that I can't really sleep and I'm anxious and you know I have shallow breathing and So when all of, and I'm having anxiety, so when all of that was kind of compounded, it was just really hard for my body to actually get to sleep. So yeah, like I was just, you know, putting on some meditative music and trying to just relax sleep medication helped, <laughs> like <Yeah>. <laughs> NyQuil, <laughs> I, like mm-hmm. after a couple of nights of that not really working and then, um, you know, getting like NyQuil or, you know, getting like a sleep aid from the drugstore or something over the counter helped. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and and share your experience. It's been very insightful living in Seattle and I've heard similar stories. And, you know, you read about what's going on with the healthcare systems and hospitals right now, but to hear from someone who's actually gone through this experience from beginning to end is really insightful. And I appreciate you sharing your story with me. Yeah, of course. I hope that, you know, I hope that it's helpful and that, you know, people can use it to try to protect themselves. After our conversation ended, my interviewee reached back out with an additional piece of advice she would like added to this interview. She recommends that individuals discuss with their family and loved ones each other's preferences for goals of care should they go into critical conditions. So this would include what they would want regarding a DNR or DNI versus comfort care. Do people already have living wills with specifics, et cetera? Since the illness comes on and progresses very fast, sometimes end-of-life wishes are not known to family members, especially with younger patients. Being put on a ventilator involves being intubated and sedated, which is essentially a medically induced coma while the machine breathes for you. So if patients' oxygen levels drop in the ER and they need to be ventilated, they can't share that information with medical staff. This is something that is happening in New York along with other areas across the country. Beginning these conversations may be difficult or feel intimidating. The Washington Patient Safety Coalition has a list of resources on our website to help people know how to begin this important dialogue with loved ones so you can feel better prepared for an illness that progresses rapidly and ensure that your family member's wishes are respected. Thank you for listening, and thank you to all of the brave healthcare workers who are working tirelessly and putting themselves at risk to ensure our health and safety.